walking in a country and I've been chasing after my shadow. Welcome back to the Camino Podcast. This is episode 11, and I'm your humble Nobody pilgrim host, Dave Whitson. Have you ever dreamed about starting a life, a new life on the Camino? For so many of us, the Camino is the alternative to the busy life at home, the thing that we do when we're not working. But what if there were no line between the two? What if the Camino were your life's work? What if you lived right along the Pilgrim's Road and at a house that was open to pilgrims who were walking along the way? Today, I speak with two pilgrims who did exactly that. Rebecca Scott, who lived in Pittsburgh, walked the Camino first in the early 1990s, and then as we moved into the early 2000s, she decided that she and her husband, Patty, would like to move and try something new along the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Ultimately, they settled on Moratinos in Castileon, a small village in the midst of the Meseta shortly before Saagun. A little bit further to the northeast, in France, an Irish couple, Ram and Aideen, decided to settle on the GR65, the route connecting Le Puy-en-Velay to Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. And for Ram and Aideen, they found Moissac to be the spot of choice. And again, about a decade ago, they resettled and launched a gîte, Gîte Ultrea, in Moissac. In this episode, I speak with Rebecca and Rom about their experiences, the lessons they've learned, the advice they would offer to dreamers like you and I, and some other stories. Rebecca also offers some thoughts on her book, published a few years ago, The Moorish Whore, on a Castilian princess with a really interesting story that had, for all intents and purposes, largely been lost to history until Rebecca reimagined it. That's the plan for today, so sit back and enjoy, and thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Rebecca Scott, the author of The Moorish Horror, published just a few years ago, and the co-owner of The Peaceable Kingdom, a farmhouse in Moratinos, Spain. Thanks for coming on the podcast with me, Rebecca. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored. It's great to talk with you. You know, my earliest memory of Moratinos is in when I was walking in 2002, I uh, I decided for some reason that I was going to walk the longest day of my life at that point and go some 40 kilometers from Carrion de los Condes to Saagun. And I remember arriving in a village that, according to my confraternity guidebook, was not supposed to exist. And um, it turns out later, I discovered it was Moratinos, and I sat on a bench in the middle of the town next to a Fanta machine, uh, drank a Limon Fanta, and watched a farmer bring in, I don't know, 300 sheep all at the same time. And it was a, it was a strange moment in this uh, imaginary town, or so I thought. Um, and uh, so it's cool now to see that that little village that didn't even make it in the guidebooks now has an albergue, has, uh, has your home, the Peaceable Kingdom, and uh, is very much on the pilgrim map. So what inspired you to move there in 2006 when it was uh, still largely off the, off the, the pilgrim guidebook uh, scene? Well, there, that's part of the attraction was there was nothing here, mm-hmm. um, except there is, there is something magical here. I think maybe you felt it when you mm-hmm. came through. When I walked the whole Camino in 2001, I walked through um, I walked through this town, obviously, but I have no memory of it and just did not register at all. But um, we came through, we were looking for a place to settle down that summer of 2006. Um, and a friend, uh, that acquaintance from online had bought a farmhouse in this town and said, stop by and see our new albergue. So we did. Um, and there was nothing there but a ruin and the <laughs> the guy who I had talked to had gone off to have a baby somewhere else and told us we could stay in his yurt in the backyard. 
and it was all very, very funky, very scruffy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we met the man with all the sheep, and we met the other neighbors who gathered in the Plaza Mayor to play cards at night. There were, oh, probably about 12 people living here then. Mm-hmm. And um, they invited us to sit down and have a glass of wine and have, you know, dealt us into the card game and were just happy to have us. They were the most welcoming people that mm-hmm. we had met in our traveling. And we'd heard that Castilians are kind of closed and dark people, but no, we had opposite experience here. And we stayed in town for three days and met the pilgrims as they came through in the morning. And and there was nothing here for pilgrims. Mm-hmm. Um, the Camino Frances is, is utterly overpopulated with people um, ready to make a dime off the pilgrims. And this was one of the only places with nothing. Mm. Um, so we thought, hmm, is there a place to rent here? We could get a feel for it. And the, the people just laughed at us. <laughs> um, but And they invited us back for the fiesta in August, which was very generous of them. And I'm not sure they thought we would come back, but we, we did. And that's when someone said, there's this little finca on the edge of town, a little you know farm compound. No one's lived there for 20 years, but we might think about selling it once you have a look. And ta-da, the, the peaceable was found. <laughs> um, it, was, it was very magical because as soon as we found it, then my house in Pittsburgh sold. Um, I, it, I, and then the market crashed in America. So mm-hmm. we, we got out. We got out just in time. Mm-hmm. Um, cashed out all of the savings and the, the, all of the investments we'd done to prepare for this. And it's like within weeks, everything went south. Um, it's really very much a story of divine providence. And, um, oh, I'm writing that book as we speak right now. I'm, mm. I'm writing uh, a book about our life here and why, answering all the same questions that every pilgrim asks <laughs> who comes through the door. But anyway, I hope I'm not already wandering off in the wrong direction. No. This is good. What's the process been like of getting that finca and uh, restoring it and, and, and settling in and establishing this, this life in a small Castilian village? No, oh, well, the, getting the, we were the last people, I think, in Castilla Leon who, who got a really good deal on real estate. Hmm. Um, the people here had never, hadn't really sold anything to strangers before, and um, they, I, I'm not sure they knew what the place was worth, but we got a very, very good, what we thought was a very good price, which our neighbors thought it was horrendously high, but, <laughs> um, and it was a handshake deal. There was no realtor, no lawyer, no officialdom. Um, we went before a, a notary, mm-hmm. handed over an envelope full of cash, and signed the papers, and they gave us the title deed to the house and the bodega, the, the wine cave in the center of town that yeah. comes with the house. Um, and from day one, we had pilgrims staying with us because we were the only place in town for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the other people who were trying to start something in the ruin, um, things didn't work out for them, and they kind of went off the scene after a year or so. But um, we stayed here, and the, the, as we reformed the house, which was turned out to be a much bigger job than we had anticipated, um, we brought our dog over from America with us and started, you know, dogs started showing up here as well as, as pilgrims. And, um, and a lot of very skilled pilgrims helped us do renovation work here. Hmm. And... Um, I'm a. I'm very interested in architecture. I used to cover architecture for a newspaper in America. I'm a former journalist, um, and this everything here is made of adobe and mud and and straw, mm-hmm. and so it's fascinating building material. And I learned all kinds of wonderful things from the neighbors and um, how to cobble things together. And just just had a. I'm having a blast still working <laughs> with its material. Um, and making really beautiful, cool things happen with it. And having pilgrims in in and out through the day and meeting all kinds of very various and, and odd and lovely people, it makes life very interesting on a daily basis. Um, settling in was not all easy. We had to have contractors come and do the heavier work, the masonry, the roofing, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first... We couldn't find anyone for a while because the building boom was on in Spain. That mm. all the builders were off on the coast building cracker boxes, um, so we had to go with kind of mom and pop kind of builders. Um, and the first people we had in were not very honest, shall I say? Mm. Um, and they left the job about halfway through, 
we had a roof but no windows or doors um, and we couldn't find anyone else to take the job and for about four, five months it was we thought we made the biggest mistake of our lives it was very depressing um, but then we found we went to sue these guys and the lawyer we hired said we have to have a master builder do an estimate of how much work they have done. Mm -hmm. Then the master builder who did the survey said, sure, I'll finish this job. <laughs> so, glory be, he, he did a, a really nice job. Not perfect, not up to my standard, but you know, I'm from another country. Mm -hmm. But, um, and yeah, we're, we're living happily ever after. We can, like any house that's about 400 years old, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have a lot of maintenance and things break and the plumbing still is rather medieval. But um, but it's it's a it's a wonderful adventure and it's lo lovely to live in a house that is still still holds on to a lot of its old character, mm -hmm. and to give these pilgrims something different and something even delightful and and homelike rather than just be another business that you know here's your bed here's your dinner you know here's your ticket um, give me the money stamp you're out you know just yeah. this is a a home and we can be hosts and look people in the eye. And we have room. We have room for five pilgrims here, hmm. um, and we don't often fill the place up because often the, the the fifth person is someone who's living here for a while, mm -hmm. and that's another unique thing about this place. Is we, when a pilgrim stops and wants to stay and help and is skilled in, they they will stay and become kind of a part of the scene for a while, and mm -hmm. that's that's nice for them and for us usually. That unless, sounds like a course, great arrangement. Oh yeah, unless sometimes they turn out to be fugitives or. Something. <laughs> um, but yeah, it keeps life interesting. Yeah, you mentioned the bodegas, and I think anyone who's walked through Moratinos has paused and wondered at these hobbit houses that uh, protrude from the hillside and and may not fully understand their purpose or function. So, could you describe the bodegas briefly? Oh, they're little caves that were are dug into this round hillside there were, there used to be 21 of them they have a little a little door on them mm -hmm. they go deep into the the bowels of the hill and each household in the town used to have at least one and they were primitive refrigeration um because the temperature in there stays at steady about 60 degrees fahrenheit um and it's perfect for storing wine and a lot of a lot of them have winemaking capability inside. Mm -hmm. uh, two of our neighbors still produce their own wine inside their bodegas. It's not much good, but <laughs> but it's um, it's it's ours. <laughs> yeah. um, our bodega, we have a very big one, a nice solid one. We haven't um, come up with a good use for it yet except to store wine. Um, the problem is that when we have wine, it doesn't stay stored for very long. Mm. Some, somehow <laughs> manage to use it. Yeah. But, but yeah, with there's it's a characteristic bit of folk architecture from about here through to through the through Leon mm. province because of the uh, kind of um, ground that this here. It's very easy to dig, but it when it's exposed to air, it turns on very stony and hard. So hmm. it's it's easy to dig them. Nice. So you walked the Camino in two thousand one. And then yes. moved to Moratinos in 2006, and now you've been living on the Camino for essentially a decade. How, yes. Yeah, how has living on the Camino changed your view of pilgrimage? Oh, well, that's, I, don't, I don't know if living on the Camino has changed my view. I think, well, just being a part of the Camino and continuing to be a pilgrim, mm -hmm. because I spend a lot of time on the trails still, and I got into writing guidebooks for a while and helping to waymark and and to um, put into English guides for the newer Caminos or the, the, the newly waymarked ones. So, mm -hmm. um, and I've become pretty involved with several different groups that are activists on the Camino for different different things and reasons, and kind of the, the, the token um, North American <laughs> in some of these places. Um, it helps my Spanish get a little better, and it, and it also brings us more of a can-do attitude to a lot of places where people just like to talk and complain and carry on <laughs> and shout at each other. And you'll say, okay, we have a problem here. Obviously, what are we going to do? How, who's going to do this? Mm -hmm. um, and then I get these weird looks like, oh, my God. 
<laughs> we're supposed to actually do something. You know? uh, so yeah, and I'm part of a group that's new that started about a year and a half ago now that is actually achieving things. And I'm really, really, I'm really enjoying being a part of a group that you know, goes and marches and, and talks to city councilmen and is, is making some real changes and it's good to see. Is there a specific change that you could describe that's taking place as a result of your work? Well, I can't say it's all my work, yeah. but um, this group is called FIX. It's called the Fraternidad Internacional del Camino de Santiago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they it's mostly um, Spanish people, but um, did a review of the whole Camino Frances to start and found several places where pilgrims and traffic are not combining well and pilgrims keep getting hit by cars there mm. or there are um you know bridges out that haven't been repaired for a while uh, it's, they call them black points on the camino that are unsafe um and after these are identified then we started to write letters to the the um, people in charge of these places to make them more safe you know what can we do how can we change the engineering how do we improve this um trash dump or you know it's these places that obviously are someone's responsibility and with um with someone doing their job they wouldn't be so dangerous mm-hmm. so and now the at least in galicia there there's been formed a a ministry to take care of this mm-hmm. and it's like yes if we hadn't said something they would not have done anything so far all they've done is to tell pilgrims to wear reflective clothing so they don't get hit by cars <laughs> <laughs> um, but hey it's something okay yeah um, what are yeah, the also go ahead yeah, yeah also they were, we're working with UNESCO to define exactly what the um, patrimony de humanidad um, designation means and how much can we <laughs> enforce the rules on the Camino when people want to develop their industrial park or their their store you know right up to and over the Camino path itself mm. and where what is our our legal standing and our rights to 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 interfere with local business mm-hmm. And they're not always happy to have a foreigner tell them to. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an issue that you are passionate about that you're you're hoping to bring to the forefront in discussions moving forward? Is there a is there a, a change that you see being necessary for the 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 continued growth or preservation of the Camino? Well, that's a that's a huge question. Yeah. Um, I'm involved with several different projects, not all of them with fix. Um, through Fix, I am, I'm in charge of staffing the um, albergue at Convento de San Anton, an old ruined monastery mm-hmm. over by Castro Jerez. Um, and part of the reason we're involved with that is we wanted to be – everyone's saying that the, the albergues are being taken over by money-making people and they're mm-hmm. being commercialized. So rather than bitch and moan about this, we thought, well, we'll take an albergue and keep it simple and keep it austere and minimalist mm-hmm. and – so we can be the Alberia that we're talking about. So that's why we got involved with this. Um, and it is very austere. And, and trying to find people tough enough to take two weeks of volunteer work there is not always easy. Mm. Um, but if you know anybody who wants to be a, a Uspitalero in <laughs> camping conditions, just let them get hold of me. Right. Um, also, the, um, oh, I'm, I'm involved now. This is, hasn't become public yet. But um, we're developing... Uh, a place where pilgrims who die along the Camino can be memorialized. Hmm. Um, there are places along this, the path where people have actually died that have a marker. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd like to have a, a, a garden or a, a group of trees or some way that people who die, their family or their friends, can put up a plaque or a marker and honor them as fallen pilgrims. Um, and that's come, that's moving forward quite quickly. Just this week, the, we're getting making some real progress. Mm. So, um, you'll, I'll, whenever I I can, I'll, I'll make an announcement on that one. It's 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 kind of feel good stuff. It's not changing yeah. the world, but it's making the the path a little bit more more humane. Um, and I like to and having been around the pilgrimage since '93, that's when I discovered it. It's when I first hit the pilgrim trail. Mm. Um, it's changed out of all recognition, <laughs> and some of the things that are being done with it are just appalling and. Disneyfied and paved and turned into something that is just not what a pilgrimage is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like to be part of 
keeping some of the, the scruffiness here <laughs> and keeping it a bit more of a challenge rather than you know, an amusement park for everybody. Mm-hmm. And keeping this, the, the quietness and the spirituality alive. And that's very important to me. And, and I think it's important to a lot of people who, who undertake to do this. Mm-hmm. It's not a holiday place. It's not a vacation. It's a, it's a pilgrimage. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want people on unicycles going across it. <laughs> well, I, think, I don't know. There's, there are many Christian saints who like, lived on top of a pole, so you can't tell people not to be unicyclists. But um, it's, it shouldn't be a stunt. You know, it's mm-hmm. just it, you should have respect for the path, and you should not expect the path to adjust to your demands. You should adjust yourself to the path's demands. Mm-hmm. This is... The holy place. You take off your, you know, take off your shoes. This is a something very special, and we need to be respectful of it, and not expect it to change for us. We change for it. Mm. So, so there. <laughs> <laughs> the one issue that often comes up is the is the massive spike in pilgrims in the last one hundred kilometers, and every once in a while there their internet forum conversations about you know can this be changed can you get rid of the last 100 kilometer requirement for the compostela are there ever discussions about the the 100k requirement in the groups that you're a part of oh very much the fix group is who who started that i have mm. to say um i am i'm i'm of my own mind with that one i think that there should not be any requirement of you know, they should not have made any kind of arbitrary number of miles to walk. That's what created this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and they're now talking about rolling it back to 300 to get the Compostela. Hmm. The, the problem is that um, the Compostela is given out by the cathedral, and it's it's their toy train, and they want it this way, and this is how it's going to be. We can complain all we want, but they've made up their mind, and they've told us from the pulpit that, you know, mind our own business. They, they don't want anyone to tell them what to do. Hmm. Um, but there's other things we can do. We can, um, we can have our own Compostela, um, hmm. something splendid and beautiful that does not offer you any ticket to heaven, mm-hmm. but can, it uh, can have written on there how far you came, where you started, or one for just, just for people of long distance. Mm-hmm. We're also trying to get the, um, with cooperation from the the um, hoteliers in, in Saria and in the area of the 100, 100 kilometers um, to give precedence to pilgrims who are coming from farther than 300 kilometers away mm. so that all of the, the, the low-cost beds are not taken up by tourists who started this morning but people who started in Moisac and started in Lepuy or you know, way farther back and who kind of earned the, the right to to have a little precedence there. Mm. Um, but you know, these are all things under discussion, and we're not sure how well they'll work or how they'll go over, but um, I think the people who have come a long, long way should have a little bit more consideration given. After 10 years now in Moratinos, you are an expert uh, on being an expat living on the Camino, having successfully completed that relocation process. and. I imagine that you have no shortage of people who express their own dream of doing something of this kind, buying a house, starting an albergue, um, and seek your, your your advice. What advice do you have to offer for someone in that situation who's who's starting to entertain those kinds of dreams? Oh, well, yeah, I have a lot of experience with these people. I, I think one of the first <laughs> things they do is they send me an email. I actually have a... I have a little document written up to say you want to be an hospitalero. You know, I used to train hospitaleros, but the people who want to stay here forever or you know have their own place—that's another. That's like graduate school pilgrimage stuff, man. <laughs> um, the advice I usually give them is: you have to be an hospitalero before you even consider this. You have to volunteer in an albergue and see it from that side of the fence because it is not what it looks like. Mm. It's. Um, and so many people they'll go out and start looking at available houses before they've ever volunteered. <laughs> it's like, oh man, that's crazy. <laughs> um, the other things I tell them is try don't try doing this on your own. You need a partner or you need some people to help you, um, and you have to have independent wealth. You cannot expect this place to feed you. Mm. It's 
having an albergue is not any way to make a living. Um, the overhead here is very high, the taxes are high, um, the environment for small businesses in Spain is just murderous. Hmm. Um, I would never try to make a living doing this. It's almost impossible. Um, although, but then I'm not a businessman. You know, there might be some very brilliant person uh, with the anointing of God on him, and yeah, sure, go for it. But um, thankfully, I still work. I'm, I'm a book editor, um, and we have pensions, and we we have enough of a support that we can support ourselves and our pilgrim habit. Um, but I would not try doing this without some other outside income mm. or without any help. Um, and you also places that are for sale, the, the albergues that are going, that are for sale, they're usually extremely overpriced. You know, the price to the sky is hoping that some foreign sucker will come <laughs> along. Um, also, um, there's usually they're usually going out of business for a reason. There's too many already in town, or the foundation is shifting, or the, uh, the neighbors are are awful. You know, some there's usually some reason that you're going to have to find out on your own. So it's a Long, long road, and it's a tough go. But there are people, just two new people now, um, in the last week, have moved into their new place. There's an uh, Australian lady in Vega de Valcarce hmm. who just bought a place, and there's an American girl who bought a place in Samos. Wow. And it looks wow. a B&B. So, um, and there's people coming and asking questions constantly, and little groups of people who've got together to try to find a place together. Just amazing amount of interest on, on the Camino. And hopefully, when, well, when my book comes out and people can read all this adventures, um, that'll either scare them all away or <laughs> we'll be overrun with people. It'll be like um, Provence after this, after all those books came out. Yeah. So, Speaking of so, books that you've written, a few years ago you published your first novel, The Moorish Horror. Uh -huh. and, and I'm curious what inspired you to focus on this story of this little-known Castilian princess from a thousand years ago. Oh, well, because what could be more interesting than a, <laughs> a princess from a thousand years ago? Come on, especially, oh, and who really, really, she lived here, you know, she's from the neighborhood. Um, I found, I'm a historian, I, mm -hmm. I was trained as a historian before I ever got into writing other things, and I love history, I love local history especially, um, and I was volunteering at the um, Madres Benedictinas, the monastery in Sagun, um, as a Uspitalero, and I saw I was in the chapel, and saw there's a tomb there of Alfonso the Sixth. He's one of the great um, innovators of the Camino idea, and there were and across the apse was the, another tomb of four or five of his wives, all stuck in the same box, um, and their names were listed. There's Berenguela and Beatrice, and these very French names, as you would expect, and then in the list was Zaida, hmm. Zaida. And I thought, that's, there's some, there's a story here. So, of course, I asked the sister, one of the sisters, and she said, oh, yeah, everybody wants to know about that. Um, and they have a little archive there, and she started me reading the, the paperwork and the, the, um, the record. And that monastery there that only has 12 or 15 sisters there now used to be a massive monastic complex, one of the biggest, biggest ones in Spain a thousand mm -hmm. years ago. And Alfonso was kind of based there. And Zaida was this princess from Sevilla, a Moorish princess who he kind of took as a, a prize of war mm. back back from her father who kind of sold her. Um, and she, well, different accounts, you know, history gives us different accounts of her. Some say she was like the, the queen of the court for a while before she died in childbirth. But then other ones say that she went to Sagun where all the monks were in charge and was treated pretty badly. Mm. Um and I thought, you talk about a culture clash. You bring this girl who came from this beautiful poetic culture of Seville and put her into this you know, medieval black hole of Sagun <laughs> with all these um, you know, hard-ass Benedictines. Um, what's she going to do? How is she going to live? Mm. Um, so, And because history tells us very little about her personally, I got to make it all up, which is <laughs> the privilege of the novelist. And I had a real good time writing that. <laughs> Um, and I played a little bit with the, the facts, so it is fictionalized, but it, she really did exist, and I did base 
her life on whatever facts I could get. And I hit the mother load when I discovered her, her father was a poet king of Seville. Hmm. And her, her mother was also a poet. And there's all these folk tales and stories about them. So I could, I had this sort of subplot of this glorious life down in Seville in in and old Andalus before everything went to hell. Um, and what a lovely culture it was. So um, anyway, there was a there was a treat to write. I, I really enjoyed it, and so I'm writing another book now, which is not nearly as you know poetic and um, and you know, movie ready. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a good experience. I'm, I'm very glad, and it's coming out in, in Spanish. Um, oh, cool! I'm having it translated now, and it'll come out toward the end of the year in in Spanish. That'll be great. Um, if people if people listening want to find out more about uh, the book, the the current one and the upcoming one, or about the Peaceable Kingdom, get in touch with you to potentially stay there. How can they find you? Well, I have a blog that I need to take better care of. And it's, um, I started the blog years and years ago. So if you want the full story, you could um, waste days of your life reading that thing because <laughs> I've been writing it for eight years. Um, it's called moratinoslife.blogspot.com um, and the name of the blog is Big Fun in a Tiny Pueblo and, um, in it I get all discursive and philosophical at times but I also get all the, the, the warts and the dirt and the doggy do because um, we also adopt dogs and, and other creatures here too it's a, a wild place to be I loved reading your story about going up on the trails with Jesus Hato from uh, Via Franca del Bierzo because I read that having just spoken with Jack Hitt who tells like mm -hmm. almost the exact same story in Off the Road so I'm, it makes me wonder just how many people Jesus Hato is driving through the mountains yeah, well <laughs> he's not doing a lot of driving these days yeah. he's a wild man I've, I've only really gotten to know him in the last few months uh, he's, he's very frail these days um, but um He's, he'll get in his car and drive 200 miles to a friend's house in Vigo. I mean, he lives pretty far away from the coast. Mm -hmm. He shows up at some ungodly hour of the night, banging on the door, and the guy opens the door and says, Hato, what's going on? What's the matter? And Hato's like, man, I had a dream about you, and, and you were in trouble, and I thought, I've got to find out if he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what a guy, you know, what yeah. a guy. What That's a friend. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, he's an interesting character. Yeah. And there's a, that's another great thing about living here is there's there's so many interesting characters here. Mm -hmm. um, and when you take pilgrims in, you you meet they they come to the door and they uh, you meet them and you talk to them and feed them. And some of them are really great and some of them are not great. But you don't have it's it's isolated here and people like to say that this is the end of the world. This is the 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 middle of nowhere they say. <laughs> but we always say, no, man, this is the middle of everywhere. Hmm. And we don't have to go out looking for company. We got, we got the whole world coming right through the gate. Ron Bates is the owner and operator of Gite Ultrea in Moissac, France. He hails originally from Ireland. And Rom, how did an Irishman end up living in Moissac, France? Well, actually, I was walking out of Dublin one day and I turned left instead of turning right. No, that's a joke. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I, uh, I, I had walked to my first pilgrimage was San Jean Pied de Port to Santiago in 2003. And uh, in July, during a heat wave, with everybody else. And of course, the advice always is try not to walk when it's really hot and, and really don't walk when everybody else is walking because it gets too crowded. Mm -hmm. But of course, what do I do? I do both. <laughs> and uh, it was fantastic. I mean, really just an amazing thing. And um, I think, you know, the, the Camino gives you gifts. And this might sound strange, but it gives you these gifts. And the gifts aren't always immediately apparent. They they kind of reveal themselves when you need them. And uh, a year, nearly a year later, my wife was really sick and I had to rush her into hospital. And when she was in hospital, I just turned around to her and I said, 
this of course is after walking the Camino I said mm-hmm. well, you know why don't we do something together with our lives and now instead of waiting 20 years till we retire you know because the doctors thought she was quite seriously ill at the end of it it turned out not to be thank god but she said yes so we started our search for Ajit in Le Puy mm-hmm. in uh, I, gosh I, the latter part of 2004 and uh once a month for about six months, we'd, we'd come over and uh, spend about four or five days uh, a month coming down the Camino, looking for the Shema, looking for uh, a place. And um, Saint-Jacques decided to say stop in Moissac. Hmm. And uh, we found our place, which was a bit of a ruin when we bought it. And uh, we moved in in June 2005. And we got the sheet open in June 2007. Hmm. So that's the quick version um, of how we found Moisak. Uh, really, what we were doing was following the, the Shema to find a place that was on the Shema. And also, I wanted to try and find a place that was in a town as opposed to in the country because... Mm-hmm. You know, my language at the time wasn't great. Not that it's fantastic now, but, uh, you know, my fear was that with the Internet and, you know, satellite TV, you can be in relatively good contact with your, you know, with Ireland and, and what was going on there. But if you weren't in contact with where you're living, you could become isolated. And so I didn't want to be in a position where we were in the countryside with no contact and I, I thought being in a town would be better. So that's where, you know, everything came together in Wasak. Not that we particularly looked for Wasak, but, um, you know, we we uh, were kind of like an hour and a half from Bordeaux or Toulouse. We're about 40 minutes from. Uh, we're, we can get to three airports that fly directly to Ireland if we need to. Um, we're beside the train station. You know, there's all sorts of things that work, and we're mm-hmm. on the Camino, on the Shaman. Uh, so, you know, it's... It, in all sorts of ways, it it worked for us um, without us knowing it at the time, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But um, so that's how we found our way to Moissac. And of course, you know, uh, in Moissac, there's a, a beautiful um, 11th century, uh, no, sorry, 9th century, 10th century abbey, the mm-hmm. Abbey Saint-Pierre, which is a magnificent building. And uh, there is a convent of nuns that sing in a chant e- every evening and morning, which is beautiful as well. So we, when we get a chance, we go up there, and it's really, really lovely place to be, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Many pilgrims listening are familiar with the albergues in Spain, of course, but if they haven't yeah. walked in France, they don't know about the gites. So yes, what what do they need to know? What are the key similarities, differences between albergues and gites? Um, well, I think the, the, the first and most obvious thing, generally speaking, um, France is more expensive than Spain, but the, the uh, payoff in that is that um, the, G, the gîte in France, generally speaking, uh, tend to be more comfortable mm-hmm. um, in, in uh, some cases and uh, will also offer breakfast and dinner if you... Uh, are looking for it, uh, and that that would be probably the main mm-hmm. difference. It's it's a level of comfort, really, would be probably the biggest difference of all. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, in France, you get you can get, you know, two uh, types of sheet. You've got sheet communal, which is generally speaking a sheet which is run by the town, and um, so that can either be fantastic or it can be sometimes a little bit ropey. Uh, the one in Wasak is very good. It's called the Ancien Carmel, um, but it's quite big. It's got about 90 beds. <laughs> and uh, so, um, you know, it depends. As you walk, you'll pick it up pretty quickly where the places to go or who, who you know, are the good guys, who are the bad guys. <laughs> you know, the, the word of mouth, generally speaking, is quite strong, I think. And, and you know, you can, you can find out. And, of course, the Pilgrim Forum um, is a great uh, internet resource for you know asking other pilgrims what they think and where they've been and what the good places or the bad places are. You know. Yeah, 
I want to talk about expectations and reality. I imagine you had this vision in your mind of what it was going to be like to move to France, set up a gîte, and and how it would work. So, but yes. I also I also imagine the reality has diverged from those expectations. It has. Yes, it has. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, let's put it this way. See, I used to be super organized and I worked for uh, a, a big corporation. And so I, I um, you know, I had everything in a spreadsheet and my life was very organized. <laughs> you know, So I came to Moisac with this spreadsheet, which had a load of things I was going to do in the first six weeks. And to be honest, after 10 years, I'd, I'd say there are probably still things on it that I haven't done. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, uh, little things like uh, when we came, I decided I was going to cultivate the garden immediately. Therefore, we would have vegetables that we could live with. And uh, the problem is that in Wasak, because we're so hot, you can't plant anything after about the end of April hmm. because the gr- ground dries out. And if the plant isn't in before the end of April, it won't establish itself. So it won't grow mm-hmm. because the ground's too dry, right? So, of course... The other side of it is the ground is rock hard. You can't dig into it. <laughs> Here's this idiot with a big Excel spreadsheet who's used to sitting behind a desk and not digging holes in a garden, you know, <laughs> thinking in the middle of July that I'm going to plant tomatoes. Oh, hello. Anyway, no, I, I mean, you know, I think it's probably in a way like walking the Camino. You know, when we came, we had these great lofty ideas. We we're going to do lots of things. And you soon learn what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time I walked on the Camino, I, in July, in a heat wave, decided that I was going to get to Santiago as quickly as I possibly could. <laughs> because, um, you know, for me, thinking with business head, well, the logic is the quicker you get there, the bigger the prize, right? But that's not it at all. And I walked 40 days, sorry, I walked eight days of about 35 or 40 kilometers. Uh, which was really stupid. And then I met this lady uh, who was going blind and um, I discovered that she knew somebody that I knew, which completely blew me away. And I moved on and I got to Tria Castella later and I met another lady, an Australian woman who'd walked from Le Puy, who happened to know the village that the previous lady was from. Her grandfather was born there and, you know, just all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I hadn't walked the 40 kilometers, I wouldn't have met the first lady. Do you know? Yep. So uh, what I'm saying is when we came to Wasak, we had all these expectations. Um, you know, for instance, I genuinely thought that we'd get here in June 2004 or 2005 and be open by June 2006. Mm-hmm. But actually, it was June 2007. So, you know, that has knock on effects in terms of of, of um, how, how things are financed and, and whatever. But everything kind of works do you know mm-hmm. um you, you you just adjust your reality to your circumstance and you know um we still have people who visited us in 2007 coming in the door we've one guy who's been with us about eight times hmm. over the 10 years and you know um it when we came over we were terribly naive we thought we were going to operate in the way that we operated at home, do you know? Mm. Um, but it's a completely different world. And, uh, you know, uh, everything moves slowly here. And um, you just find a way to live with it. It, it can be extraordinarily frustrating. I, I, I quite like it when my friends come over, you know. <laughs> and uh, we go to the supermarket and, you know, Two, two people in front of you in the queue and the woman is there for about five minutes and they're having a great <laughs> chat. And my friends are going up the wall. But what I know is that that woman at, at the till will give you exactly the same amount of time as she's given the previous person. It's mm-hmm. not, do you know, it's not like she's there to frustrate you. She's just there to be nice to somebody, do you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, a, in a way, you know, when you're walking, I always say to people, say hello. Because you never know what the other person, how the other person is feeling. You know, Mm -hmm. that hello might just be enough to help them keep going till they get to the the next Gite or albergue where they get a rest and something to eat. And then everything seems brighter, you know. Hmm. You know, some days there are grey clouds and you just can't seem to find your way through it. And, you know, that simple hello might be enough to get 
make people happy to, mm-hmm. to move on. And in moving on, they might meet somebody who, who says something to them that makes a connection that, you know, gives them the energy to move on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so uh, I think, you know, in so many ways, we're incredibly lucky to have found the place that we have mm-hmm. here in Wasek. And, uh, um, you know, uh, our life before I walked the Camino was, was uh, you know, a, a conventional life. We both had good jobs. We, we had lots of holidays and everything. And um, then I walked the Camino. And it suddenly, you know, after I'd walked so fast in this pursuit of the great prize, mm-hmm. um, and I met the ladies and I slowed down and I had time to breathe and I had time to reflect. Do you know... I know this might sound a bit strange, but Santiago isn't really the big gift of the Camino. Okay, to arrive in Santiago is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It really is. But it's not the gift. It's the journey is the gift. It's the time that you have on the, the Shaman is the gift. So ironically, you know, and of course, typically for me, <laughs> I did it in reverse. I was trying to go so fast I couldn't see anything. And really, the way to do it is to try and go slowly, you know. Mm, yeah. And uh, you know, uh, and and just appreciate the time that you have. And so when you know, sometimes we get people, particularly men, um, who come in who are strapped to these incredible timetables, you know. Um, and you know, some guys can come in and say, "I will be in." Uh, Santiago at 16.33 on the 21st of May, you know, and I'm going like, stop, stop, you know, because the problem with that is that you can't allow for things going wrong mm-hmm. or you, you can't allow for meeting somebody that you find really interesting, that you want to walk a little bit with, do you know, mm-hmm. if you, if you, if you tie yourself to the um, program, then you obscure everything else because the obsession is to be sure that you go from A to B to C to D. But the Camino isn't about going from A to Z. It's about going from A to P to B to Q, if that's <laughs> the way you need to do it. Do you know? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so, sometimes I do I do reflect. I remember I had a, a chat with a guy. He was uh, a business consultant uh, with IBM. And we were talking big company politics at the table. This is last year. And I just, it brought it all back to me. And I went, you know, I'm so lucky I don't have to do that anymore. (laughs) And he said, I'm so lucky I'm retired. I don't have to do that anymore. Do you know? Um, Not not that it's bad. You know, when you're in the moment, it's it's fantastic because it's a good place to be. You get well paid and, you know, and a lot of people like it. But equally, you know, when you walk the Shaman, it it told me that there is another way. And, okay, look, you know, in our life here in Wasek, we will never have the, the money in the bank that we would have had if we had stayed in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But equally, if we had stayed in Ireland, you know, we would have been hit by the financial crisis and, uh, you know, we would have being crippled with debt and you know we probably wouldn't have our little boy who's Matthew he's uh, he's just turned eight mm-hmm. you know so there's all sorts of things in in all sorts of ways that um, we we should be grateful do you know and yeah. you know it's funny it, the big things sometimes people think you know having a, a, a Mercedes or having a big house or having you know a million dollars in the bank that's the big things, but they're not because you know when Steve Jobs died, how many billion did he have in the bank? Didn't do him much good. Mm-hmm. Do you know that's <laughs> just the point that the the really important things in your life are the people that you love and your family and you know not necessarily the external things. Yeah. Do you know that um, we get caught up in thinking that. And I, I'm terrible for technology, you know, so I've got to have the iPad and I've got to have the iPhone, you know, and, and, you know, but I don't need it. Of course, talking to you on it today is, is quite handy, but, <laughs> you know, I don't, 
I, I don't I don't need it do you know yeah and um uh you know it, it's it's uh, a it's a funny it's a funny old thing that by just putting on a pair of boots and walking mm-hmm. and having the time to breathe and think and reflect that it could have such a fundamental change in your life you know mm-hmm and, uh, ha- you know, having said the funny side of the story, you know, we left Ireland in 2005, which was pre the financial crisis mm-hmm. and, and it was kind of going crazy, but it hadn't gone crazy totally. And uh, so we were we were really uh, all our friends thought we were like hippies from the 1960s. You know, we were going <laughs> crazy. You know, they'll be back. They, they couldn't. And then, of course, the financial crisis hit in Ireland and everybody was was in, in a bad way. And, you know, property prices tumbled and, you know, people were caught in really, really bad financial situations. And we suddenly became very smart <laughs> because, you know, we had moved before the financial crisis happened. Now, there was no indication that it was going to happen, obviously, and it had never played any part in our you know, but I, I take it, you know, I, yep. I'm a smart guy. I manage. Oh, I saw it coming. Yeah. Anyway, but the, the, the real irony of it all is that things are going well again in Ireland and they're starting to come back, you know. So funnily enough, we're going back to being stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny old world. Anyway, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, as as you talk so fondly about the experience, I think there are yeah. probably people listening who are. Now, you know, if they haven't already, dreaming their own dreams and thinking about what it would be like to go relocate onto the Camino, onto the Chemin, and have a house, have maybe even an albergue or a gîte. So what advice would you offer to those people as they they think about those kinds of things? Well, uh, I mean, you know, everything's possible (laughs) uh, is is the answer to that. you need to be financed because you know uh, it's it's quite difficult to operate without having the place ready to go. You know, so mm-hmm. in our case, we bought a wreck, so we had to renovate it. So you know, you, you're going to need money to do that. Um, we found it quite difficult. Um, we went looking for work here when things were slow, and it was extremely difficult. In fact, impossible to find work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, you need to have a language, whatever, whether it be Spanish or French, because uh, fundamentally you're going to have to contact the administrative departments of whatever. And, uh, you know, if you if you have, you don't need to be fluent by any manner of means, but you do need to have enough to try and make the effort, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and if you if you don't have it, it can make your life very difficult, do you know. Um, but, you know, uh, my advice would be, uh, you know, walk the Camino, use your eyes, use, just look around, you know, it'll be, you, you'll see the places that are looking for albergues or, 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 or Jeet and the places that aren't, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you do decide to locate in a town, go and talk to the mayor. Uh, the mayor is, uh, you know, in, in places like Moissac and that, they're quite accessible. Mm-hmm. And um, it's always better that you go and see him and, you know, or her and, you know, tell them that they're fantastic and they're the nicest <laughs> people that you ever met. And, you know, you're really happy to be in this beautiful town. And, you know, and that makes your life a little bit easier. We didn't do it. We learned this later. But, you know, there you go. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, try, try not to do too much planning. Mm hmm. Because, you know, you never know what's going to come. And um, but if you if you really want to do it, it's always possible. Mm. That's the thing. Uh, you know, I, I know for people coming from the States over here, there might be certain visa issues. But, um, you know, generally speaking, in, you know, when we came to Wasak, everybody was generally speaking, welcoming and. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, no more than anywhere else, you know. There, there's some people didn't like us coming because we were the first private sheet in Wasak, and that kind of caused a bit of friction. And <laughs> you know, but uh, and there were some dark days, and and Aiden used to get a little bit upset about some of the stuff that went on, which was really silly. And um, uh, I just said to her, I said, look, you know, we don't live 
inside Mwasak. We live outside Mwasak because all the pilgrims coming to us by default are coming from outside Mwasak. Hmm. So, you know, the word of mouth is far stronger for us than, you know, having the Jeet Communal put a sign up directly outside our Jeet on the day that we opened. <laughs> you know? but, but I tell you, it's so funny. Do you know what they did? They didn't have a turn right sign. So they put a turn left sign upside down, <laughs> which, which actually pointed towards us. <laughs> So anyway, that's awesome. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you gotta you, look. It's like everything you do in your life. There'll be good days and there'll be bad days. Do you know? Mm-hmm. The great thing for us is that, generally speaking, without a doubt, in true Shema or Camino fashion, when we have a bad day, somebody comes in who's a real true pilgrim, and that mm-hmm. warms our heart and gets us going. And that's our, the reason we do what we do, do you know? Yeah. And then, it, you know, when you have that moment, nothing matters. Do you know? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what it is because, you know, the world is an awful better place with us in it than without us, do you know? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what it is. I always think that the Camino is a great place that you can just put your boots on and go walking, do you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. And you you know, again, it can be an, somebody you've never met before that you have an, an extremely personal conversation with that you would not probably have with your friends mm-hmm. that that they can say something to you that could give you the key to open the lock to find the solution to something that's been troubling you, and you never meet that person again. Mm-hmm. do you know it's yeah. stunning you know it's a, it's a really it's a it's a an, inc- an incredible place, you know. Mm-hmm. The last question I have for you, Ram, is yeah. for pilgrims unfamiliar with the GR65, the Via Podiensis, the Chemin yeah. Puy, why should they consider it for their pilgrimage? What's the what's what are the highlights? What are, what are the selling points? Well, um, the part from Le Puy to Conque is probably the most physical, all the way to Santiago in in you know in concentrated period of time, mm-hmm. but it is truly one of the most beautiful. I mean, really, uh, you know, when you, you go up on the Oberac Plateau, it's fantastic. Un- unless, of course, it's raining or <laughs> snowing, which it does a lot up there, you know. I always say to people who come through, because I've been over it three times, and it's been either raining or snowing every time, you know. Mm. So uh, when, when pilgrims come in and go, oh, no, 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 it was gorgeous. The sun was shining. I went, no, you haven't done the Camino. No, go back, start again. <laughs> it's like going to Ireland and not getting rain, you know. <laughs> that's not the country that I know. Anyway, um, uh, it, it is really beautiful. Um, there are so many magnificent places to see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in terms of architecture. Uh, in, in the abbey here in Wasak, uh, there was um, a PhD student from one of the Ivy League um, universities. I can't remember which one. He came to Mwasak last year because there is an arch uh, in Mwasak, which is the first time it was ever seen in construction. It was a Roman arch. And he came just to see an arch that Mm -hmm. I didn't even know was there. Do you know? So there's there's all sorts of things uh, to see and uh, some really beautiful stuff. And what I love is as you move through the, the landscape, you see the different soil and you see the different colors and you see the different production. Do you know? Mm-hmm. So when you're, when you're going from the Puy to Conk, you'll see a lot of cattle and well, depending on the time of the year, cause the cattle, cattle up there are only out for about three months, I think, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the rest of the time they spend indoors cause the weather can, can be a little bit inclement or quite a lot inclement actually. But, um, you know, when you get down here to Mwasak, we're much lower, so our climate is better, and we have we're all about fruit down here, you know. Mm. So you name the type of fruit, and you'll see it here, you know. And then you move on into the Jars where they're they're mad about chickens, and you know, <laughs> there's you you move on further into the Basque country, and, and you know, you the, everywhere has a speciality, and everywhere has something, and mm-hmm. you know, you meet so many different people, and then you know. Uh, when you move on into Spain, it's another thing together. It's an interesting thing, actually. I, I find that once you go past um, 
Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port mm-hmm. into, into Spain, it's really a pilgrimage in mm. terms of pilgrimage. I, I feel that you can be a pilgrim in France, but it's a walk. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, in, in that the, the overt nature of a pilgrimage is more obvious in Spain than it is in France. That's not to say that you, you, you're, you have to be sprouting you know, uh, crucifixes and saying <laughs> rosaries the whole way. It just it it it's the it's a nuance that makes a, a difference. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, personally, I think some of the nicest parts of the the Chemin can be found here in France. But that's not to say they're the best parts, mm-hmm. because the best parts can be you know. Uh, on a really bad day in a really shitty place and you just happen to meet somebody or something happens that can make, you know, just can change your world, really. And uh, it's uh, it's just a little bit different. Uh, in France, generally speaking, as I said to you at the beginning, it, it, it'll be a little bit more expensive, but, you know, um, you'll eat well. Um, generally speaking, the beds are comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, it's just a, it's slightly different in in Spain. It's t- it, they tend to be more about volume and people going through. And, and in France, the places tend to be a little bit smaller, you know, with the exception of, you know, the Carmel, which is more about groups. Do you know? But I mean, overall, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for being able to have walked the first time in 2003 and um, for all the things that have happened since then. And I'm going off again in about four weeks' time, as I said, to to walk from Porto to Santiago. So I try and walk. It's one of the ironies, actually. You know, when we came to France, I thought this is going to be great. I won't be working, really. <laughs> so I'll have lots of time to go on the Camino. And now, you know, I actually probably have less time to mm-hmm. go on the Camino. But I do get to talk about it every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is, I suppose, in a way, it's compensation. And by helping people along, I feel in a way that that's my pilgrimage. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes like walking, it's very easy. And sometimes you wonder why you're doing it, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't matter who comes in the door. Everybody has a story, you know. And some people want to tell you and some people don't. Mm-hmm. And it's the ones that don't need to talk to you more than anybody else, really. Do you mm-hmm. know? And uh, sometimes we're we're able to help, and sometimes we can't. And, and you know, you got to just take it that you do what you can, yeah. and and hope. Do you know? Because it's it's quite interesting that some people who are walking are walking away from something, and some people who are walking are walking to something. Mm. You know? Yeah. And uh, it's a subtle. It was there was a very funny morning once. Aideen was in the kitchen, and this uh, French guy walks in, and he hands her a key. <laughs> A door key and she said what's that and he said oh it's for you and she said what is it he said oh it's the key to my apartment <laughs> and she said what and he said yes i spoke to my girlfriend last night and she said you come home tomorrow or you don't come home wow. so he gave her the key yeah we have the key the one slight problem with that equation he didn't give us the address <laughs> <laughs> so you know i don't know that's what I mean. You know, he was walking away from something, you know, yeah. and uh, maybe not to something. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that there there are so many different people and, and so many stories that you, you could really spend your life just talking to people. It's great. Yeah. And, of course, being Irish, I like to talk. If you could relocate to a Camino, to a Pilgrim's Road, where would you go? Would you go to a major town or city? Would you go to a small, ruined old village where your albergue or home would be one of the very few functional residences in the village? Would you look for mountains, for beach? Would you pick one of the major routes like the Camino Frances? or something more obscure. My mind goes in a lot of different directions when I allow myself to dream a little bit about this. And the first place that comes to mind is Ponte Macera, which is on the way to 
Finisterre, about 10 kilometers or so outside of Santiago. If you've walked to Finisterre, you remember Ponte Macera, one of the most beautiful little towns anywhere on any Camino, with a wonderful old medieval bridge spanning a river that's dammed, that has a rope swing just down a little bit, so that on a warm day, it's a great spot to cool off jumping into the river. I also think about desolation, about being in the mountains, in a place where tired pilgrims would arrive at my albergue and feel a sense of relief, but also wonder at what they had just been walking through. And to that end, I imagine Monte Furado, which is on the Camino Primitivo, just after the Hospitales route and the route from Pula de Allende rejoin. It's a ruined old village where a significant amount of construction would have to go into bringing a building back to life. But what a place to be. There aren't a lot of wrong answers when you think about it, at least from the perspective of a, an idyllic spot to go and establish yourself and to live a totally different lifestyle. Of course, it's more complicated when you start to think about it from a business perspective, from making a living, from working the odd hours, long hours that hospitaleros must from early in the morning to late, late at night. And for me, at least, for now, that's where the dream dissipates and my attention goes elsewhere. But I remain grateful for the dreamers who have carried their dreams forward and made them a reality to the benefit of all of us who walk. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks again to Rebecca and Rom for joining me. Remember that you can find Rebecca at moratinoslife.blogspot.com and her book is titled The Moorish Four. You can find Rom's Jeet at ultreamoisac.com. And keep in mind that there are multiple Jeet Ultreas out there, including one in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. Rom's based in Moissac, France. Remember, as always, that you can reach us at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. Love getting emails. And you can always find us on northerncaminos.com, on SoundCloud, and on iTunes. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.